Hello and welcome to the official Sasta podcast from the main man Jason Lemkin, founder at Sasta on Jason LK on Twitter, and me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC at H Stebbings on Snapchat. Now, joining me today, we have an absolute expert and leader of the sales industry in the form of Bill Binch. Now, Bill was the senior vice president of worldwide sales at Marketo for eight years, and he joined when it was a small venture backed startup with a mission to reinvent marketing automation. It was his sales leader leadership and expertise that formed a critical component in building Marketo into one of the fastest growing enterprise software companies in the world, recognised through his being awarded Worldwide VP of Sales in 2011. However, enough from me, so now it's time to meet the main man himself. I'm delighted to welcome Bill Binch. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Bill, it's so fantastic to have you on the official SASTA podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome, Harry. It's a pleasure to join. Now, I'd love to start off today by hearing about your immense career with Marketo. So could you give me a two to three minute synopsis on on your experience seeing the scaling of the rocket ship that is Marketo? Yeah, you bet. I joined in mid-2008. I uh, had a chance to join actually in 2007, um, talked with the founders over there who I really, really liked a lot. They had done it previously with a company called Epiphany. Uh, taken a marketing technology out to market and been very successful with it. So um, I felt very confident with them. Um, but the stage I met with them, they didn't have a product at that point. And um, me knowing me fairly well, um, I'm very good at taking a, a product that's real, tangible, out to market. And so uh, we kind of paused our conversations for about a year um, until they they did actually finish up their product and came back to me in mid-08 um, showed it to me, and I was totally blown away with the user interface and the functionality of what they had done. Couldn't wait to join on board. You know, I remember my wife asked me why, why this one. I thought about it, and I answered, you know, number one, brand new technology. They just completed it a couple of months ago, so it's taking advantage of all the latest um, technological benefits that were available in building SaaS apps. Number two, selling to sales and marketers, and number three was there were no big companies, no Oracles or SAPs or Microsofts in the space, which obviously creates some risk, but also some reward if the space truly materialized, which it did. Absolutely, it did. I'm, I'm too intrigued there. You said you're enticed by selling to sales and marketers. What was it that you found attractive about that proposition? Well, it was my past. I, I had come out of college and I had sold to IT with Oracle, joined PeopleSoft and had a chance to sell to uh, really HR, finance and manufacturing. You know, I had not at that point by 2008 sold to the sales and marketing areas, which is interesting because if you think about a classically trained sales professional, they speak that, their Rolodex, their peer group, their friends are probably a lot of people that are in sales and marketing. Whereas when I joined PeopleSoft, I had to learn how to walk on a, a shipping dock or I had to learn how to walk a manufacturing floor and understand what discrete manufacturing was, say, versus process manufacturing. Those weren't natural things to me. Whereas having been in sales at that point, you know, 15, 16 years, I had the sales lingo and the knowledge of how sales processes work down really well. And so the idea to take that and apply it to who I was selling to became really exciting. And, and talking about the sales there, you know, one one major thing for a startup as they're growing and particularly, you know, Marketo in hyper growth mode is establishing a sales cadence. So, so how should we go about approaching this process of the sales cycle? There's a lot of ideas that I can share, uh, you know, and I'll start in that most 
company startup either bootstrapped by friends and family for investment or from some type of you know investment from a venture firm or something like that and at that moment by definition they're a, a money losing operation because you know they've hired developers to create a product they've probably may hired a sales rep or a sales leader to go take it to market they probably have some marketing folks that are out there, you know, banging the bushes to try and drum up some some people. Um, and so from that perspective, you know, the first thing that I think about in going to market is for most companies, think about getting transactions on the board, getting logos on the board, getting net new customer wins. And the, and the, the reason for that is uh, a couple fold. Number one, getting deals done gives confidence to the sales team. And you want nothing more than a confident sales team. Sales teams, or in this case, might be an individual or two. Individuals that think they can close business go armed to, with that psychology to their next sales cycle. And they go in there strong from that perspective. And so I've always believed that in building a new business like that, to focus on the transaction or the logos as opposed to the dollar amount. Instead of arming your salespeople to go negotiate the biggest deal possible, Go focus on getting transactions done because if they're confident, that's infectious across the rest of the company. It means that um, the customer success team is getting at bats, going and turning their customers on and seeing what products they're using. Well, that feedback obviously flows down to development, says people are using these products, they're not using these features, and gives them a focus of maybe where they take the, the product moving forward. It goes upstream, obviously, to marketing and lets marketing know what messages are resonating. And so I think it's really a circle of life of confidence that if you're closing deals, then the whole company's probably feeling that. And so from that perspective, I, I'm a believer that if your company focuses, especially on the small or the mid-market segment of the space, uh, of the selling spaces that you're going after, then give your folks a quota based on logos and not based on uh, dollar size. Is there not one element of the sales that that is slightly uh, challenging with regards to this confidence in terms of the competition. So, you know, you have two sales reps and there's intense competition between them. How do you, when one is clearly doing better than the other, keep the other from being disincentivized while one is hugely confident at winning? Well, the fir first thing I think you need to establish there is, is it two equivalent sales reps are going against each other and one's just out from the other versus is one a good sales rep and one's not. So um, I'm assuming the question is predicated on that you have two good sales reps that are equivalent um, and one's outperforming. Well, I, there's a couple things that happen there. It, you know, your job as a sales leader is to measure, you, you know, and create equal and equivalent territories so that both people have a reasonable opportunity to go achieve. And that's success. You know, manager should never measure themselves based on one person overachieving, another person underachieving, and the company's overachieving. I mean, you can do that in a short-term period, like a month or a quarter. But the reality is, I think that most sales leadership, most top-tier sales leadership measures themselves by looking at that I have a, a majority of my sales team achieving. And that should validate that you've created equal opportunity for those individuals and then allows you to go back and give one-on-one -on -one coaching and mentoring to maybe the folks that aren't achieving and go and share the, the secrets and tips that the other ones. I, I mean, I guess the best way I'd say it is there's a, there's a psychology there, Harry. If you have 75, 80% of your people making their quota and 20% of them that aren't, there's a mentality there that 
people make their quota at this organization. If you're not making it, it's not us. It's not the product. It's not the market. It's you. And so you've got to really look internally as a sales rep and determine how you can get better. Whereas I think everybody's seen the scenario where 20% of the people are making their quota and 80% of the people are missing. And in those cases, you get a really negative psychology working where, where you know, suddenly it becomes, you know, the, the majority of the sales organization is talking about how the deck is stacked against them, about how the market's not cooperating or the product's not resonating or, you know, the sales quotas are too high. And then you get a very different psychology. So I think that overall you want to, as a sales leader, whether you have two sales reps or 200 sales reps, you want to strive for having obviously the majority making quota. And speaking of the quota there, it's often something that comes up obviously in conversation. It's the key to it all. But but how as a sales leader can you look to look to establish a, a quota that is both achievable and um, confident at the same time? What do you do to make sure that you've got that perfect balance? So going back to my first comment about the logos, one of the beauties of having a so so first let me back up here. Every business plan is presented to an investor and it shows we think we're going to close this many deals at this average sale price with this average sales cycle. And remember, that's a plan. It's a piece of paper that you're going to go justify how you're going to go win business. By focusing your sales team at the initial inception of a company on the logos and not the deal size, what it allows you to do is to naturally back into what the true sales cycle and what the true average selling price is without creating artificial barriers. And so if you were to start a company in January of 2016 and you just gave your sales reps some quotas, you said, hey, we think that this product, that the average sales rep could probably close three deals per month and you gave them that quota. Well, within a few months, you're going to have some data to support that or to make decisions to change that either up or down. And so I think there's a beauty in starting the with a logo basis because um, you're not going to stay on a logo-based quota forever, right? There's an obvious point where you say, okay, we've gone and done that for a reason. It was to go and teach the sales reps how to sell and how to close. And they've done it. We've kind of figured out what our average selling price is, what the average length of the cycle is. So at this point, we want to switch over to a dollar-based quota. And that makes some sense. But how you get there, I mean, there's a lot of ways. You're, you're going to make assumptions when you're building the product based on if there's a comparable in the market on what you're going to sell it for. You're going to make some uh, uh, quota plan and business plan assumptions on how that goes. And so from that perspective, I think that's the kind of most common way. But I think a practical way is to go actually out into market with quotas based on logos, spend a few months doing that, and then that's going to naturally back into what your selling price is and what the capacity or the productivity level of what a sales rep can do in a month is. The excuse I often hear is that we haven't got the right people. So with that frame of mind, how can we go about optimizing the hiring process for sales professionals? What's the right process for this? That's a really, really good question. You know, I've gone through stages where I've wanted to go hire the number one people in the market, you know, the people that have a very similar looking background, have been at companies like uh, a Salesforce or a Success Factors, and gone and hired those number one type of talents and not had success. Um, and likewise, I've gone and done it where I've hired people that are at the number two or number three company um, and tried to, you know, bring them in as the little scrappy person and also not had success. And then vice versa that I've done it both ways. I've hired the top people and they've been great at my company. And I've hired the, the people that are scrappy, you know, you know, they're a jewel in the rough that you find and they come into my company and been fantastic. And so I, I'm not sure there's one exact 
model there on, on hiring that. I think that there is some trial and error. I worked for a company in my past, not Marketo, where I had a CEO said, I want to hire a talent, but our pay plans were closer to C-level talent. And so it's really hard. You're not going to go get a deal on A-level talent. And so I guess the best advice I'd give or best answer I'd give to that one, Harry, is you have to be, you have to be self-aware of your organization. The example at Marketo is when we started at Marketo, I was going out to some recruitment firms that I knew that I'd had history with. And I was asking for, uh, hey, I want A-level talent and I have the money to pay for it. And what I found was over time they were sending me resumes, but it wasn't the top players. It was still B or C-level talent. I finally wised up to what was going on is that Marketo had no reputation for people making money. And so a recruiter, if you think about their job, their job is to place you in a job and hopefully it's a successful run and you leave in the future and you call that recruiter back and they get to place you again. I was never going to go, despite having personal relationships with these people, I was never going to get the top talent because Marketo didn't have the, the, the story, the history, the pedigree of paying people a lot of money. And so what I did was I went upon a path working with my CEO to put some very lucrative incentives in front of my sales reps. And the whole mission of that was let's go motivate those people to sell and not just to sell, but to oversell to go and overachieve their quotas, which is good for the company, by selling more logos. But likewise, it'll make them money. And when it makes them money, we can go back to the recruiters and tell them the story that look how much money our people are making and start to slowly change their perspective that, you know, Marketo is an unknown to Marketo is now a place where people go to make money. And so we did that. We did it over a few months. Um, and we we kind of called that rigging the recruiters. We were rigging the recruiters to, you know, point their cannons at us and send us their best talent. You know, the additional piece we did is after we created some buzz around that, I went to the recruiters and I said, by the way, in this period of time, say 90 days, if we hire people based coming from your referrals, I'll give you 25% commission rate, whereas, you know, a normal commission rate would have been 20%. Um, and so we did a couple of things to really get at least a look at good talent. Um, inside of Marketo and at least improve our odds by talking to the best people. And I remember you saying before to me that there are benefits to overhiring. I'd love to hear what you think the benefits are to this overhiring and if it's sustainable then in, in markets that are potentially downturning as we have seen in recent months. Yeah, I'm not alone in that that thought process. I think if you go read Mark Benioff of Salesforce.com fame, his book behind the cloud, I, I'm going to paraphrase the, the comment. I don't remember the exact words, but it was something along the lines of if you have one extra dollar to spend in your organization and you're going to hire somebody, always hire a sales rep as opposed to development, as opposed to marketing, as opposed to anybody else in the organization, hire a sales rep. Um, and essentially the, the mindset there is um, you'll never achieve your maximum potential unless you have sales reps. On board, and you got to remember, there's a lot of dynamics around sales reps. You have sales reps that are are trained, and they're mature, and they're up to speed. You have sales reps that are in the process of of blossoming, meaning they're just learning the skill of how to sell your company, your value proposition, your culture. You have sales reps that might be on their way out, either via their own doing or you know via you know kind of not good performance, and you're putting them onto performance plans. So you have sales reps at all different stages inside your organization. Um, and it's 
tantamount in a sales leader's role. Number one, your job is to bring in the dollars. Number two is to forecast those dollars accurately. Number three is to be hiring. Um, those are your three most important things as a sales leader. Bring it in, forecast it correctly, and be hiring and staying on plan. And so, you know, I, I know I've been in positions, Harry, where I've been at full headcount and I've told my sales managers to go hire, you know, each of you can go hire one more sales rep. And they'll say, well, no, I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to dilute the territory. Um, and that's a fair, it's a fair challenge, you know, as long as you're not getting crazy with that. But my point to them is, hey, I'll tell you what, what if I give you that extra sales rep? Let's say you have 10 working for you now and I'm allowing you to hire an 11th. What if I give it to you for free? Meaning we'll pay the salary, we'll pay all the commissions, but we won't give you any quota for it. Well, most crafty sales managers figure out pretty quickly, wait a second, I carry 10 reps worth of quota. And my boss is here offering me 11 reps and I don't have to take on any more quota. That's a great deal. That's a great insurance plan for me. So that if I experience one of those things, like a rep is slow to ramp, like if a rep decides to unexpectedly quit or I have a performance issue and have to get rid of somebody, that I'm not starting from you know square one or more likely from nine reps. I now have to go recruit. I now have to go interview. I now have to go hire and you know negotiate a package. And now I've got to bring them on and ramp them up. Uh-uh. You can be ahead of time. So that's the thought process behind overhiring. And I want to be clear there, Harry, because, you know, if you're a sales rep hearing that message, it kind of says like, hey, that's kind of callous. You're just interested in, you know, what the company does at the high level, the top level, not what the rep level does. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you have 10 headcount and go hire 20 reps. That would be disastrous. What I'm saying is, Reps are always moving around. You're always promoting somebody. You're always moving somebody. Somebody's always moving out. Be smart. If you have 10 headcount, go hire for 11. No, that, that makes perfect sense. I'm, I'm intrigued because I had just had Nick Mater on the show from Gainsight. And he said uh, that customer success will be the new sales uh, and we'll see the complete evolution. How, how do you respond to that? I, I, I clearly have a bent towards customer satisfaction. I mean, especially in your early days, um, Phil Fernandez, our, the CEO of Marketo, who's a big mentor of mine, always had a statement that said, people are either rooting for you or against you. People aren't going to root for you if you're just really successful at closing new business, and then you can't make people successful. Um, and so I think from a sales perspective, you're as good as your last sale in the sense that every new sale ahead of you is going to ask you for a reference. And if you can go back and say, well, you know what, Harry, the last deal I closed was Nick Meta at Gainsight? Would you like to talk to him? That's pretty powerful. And so, you know, is customer success the new selling? I'm not sure that it's quite that black and white. I think that they both are very distinct motions inside of an organization. But you clearly, at least in the Bay Area out in California, you do see a lot of models right now being intertwined and interlocked right now between the sales and the customer success function. Um, and part of that, I think, is driven by some of the great new technologies that are out there in the world. And secondly, some of them are realizing that, especially in a cloud or a SaaS-based environment, the switching costs and the switching time are not that high. You know, back in the old on-prem enterprise selling days, you made a multi-million, multi-million dollar, multi-year commitment. And, you know, if you change your mind halfway through, it probably meant it was costing you your job inside that company. And today... Uh, if you make the wrong decision, it's probably a one-year contract and the switching cost is probably not crazy. Does the salesperson have to be aware of that? Absolutely. Because if not, they're probably not getting their full commissions. The company is not growing 
and uh, and as Phil would say, people aren't going to be rooting for you. <laughs> love, love, love Phil's comment there. Uh, and then I want to dive into a quick fire round called the sixty second faster. So I say a short statement, and you give me your immediate thoughts. Yeah, fire away. So creating your own scorecard critical for uh, being able to go sell to your customer base in a poignant way. Tools that you could not live without. What are the must-haves for you? Uh, CRM, marketing automation, uh, LinkedIn. How do you use LinkedIn? I'm intrigued. Still, let's go for a 60 second, but how's LinkedIn useful for you? Clearly, in trying to go learn about who you're selling to, the importance of what's happening around that, um, the knowledge of knowing who I'm going to go sell to is is just hypercritical in this world. And so being able to go research their background before I... Um, before I pick up the phone, before I send an email. And what do you know now that you wish you'd known when you started? Um, you know, there's a couple of things there. Um, I was given some advice when I was young that the advice I give you now, you're not going to understand till later. And you're sitting there looking at the person that's given to you in a really puzzled manner. And then all of a sudden you realize what it means is that if you understand it now, it means you you haven't grown into that, into that advice. And so, um, you know, I wish I had known the importance of continual learning because you think that as a, as a young pup coming out of college that, hey, I'm a sales rep now. My next job's a sales manager. And the sales managers know a lot more than the, man, the, the reps do. And then as a manager, I strive to be a director. And then as a director, I strive to be a VP. And you always think that, hey, as you get to the next level, you're better and it's easier. Well, it's not. It's not, you know, you're in always a state of continuous learning. It's just another layer of the layer cake. And, um, and you're making an effort to, uh, to continue to grow yourself um, and get better. And so from that perspective, I wish I knew that, you know, as, as I uh, went higher up in organizations, that it didn't mean it was going to get easier or it was going to work less. I, I wish I had understood the uh, importance of knowing that it just meant more responsibility. What's the biggest mistake that current SaaS companies are enacting with their sales process? It's probably a little bigger than the sales process. Um, you know, the model for arguably the last eight, nine years, Harry, has been to go spend a tremendous amount of dollars, like as in 50, 60 percent of your revenue on sales and marketing. I, I see that model changing now where, you know, market public markets and investors are starting to say, look, I don't want you to go for 10 or 15 years as a money losing company, you've got to show me a path of how you become productive. And so I think companies that haven't made that fundamental mentality change right now are probably making a mistake. And then one character trait that you really look for in, in any new sales hire? Self-awareness would be probably the first one. Humility would be the second one. Brilliant 60 seconds, kept that very well. Uh, and, and then diving into a, a longer form question to finish now. In terms of the sales team itself, last time we spoke, you stated that the one thing you shouldn't be afraid to do is manage activity. To what extent do you think then uh, sales leaders can do this without becoming micromanagers? Um, so you use the right word to kind of tee off that question is um, there's a very much a mindset now that with the workforce that's coming out into the market right now, that they don't want to be micromanaged. My perspective is simple on this, is you need to be able to go manage your business in a way that's unique to your business so that you can watch for patterns, you can watch for repeatability to see if people are succeeding or not, to see if people that are ramping up are going to succeed. And I think that there's this fear 
happening out there that, oh, let's be careful because if we manage too much activity, this workforce is going to rebel against that. They're going to say, you're micromanaging me. I don't want that. And I think that's completely false. I think it's totally reasonable to come up with whatever you want to call it, your dashboard, your metrics, whatever it is that you're going to use to manage your team and you know, publish those out and go show people that this is how we manage. And uh, you know, I'll, I'll finish with a real-world story there, Harry. I, I had an individual working for me several years ago. He started right around the same time that a, a sales operations person for, for me started. And she walked in my office about a month on the job, and we were talking. She said, oh, by the way, and she pointed to this guy, and she said, he's not going to succeed here. And I said, huh, that's interesting. Tell me why. And she said, he sits at his desk all day long, and he's on the web. And he's not like wasting his time on like sports sites or things like that. Um, He's on the web researching companies, but he's afraid to pick up the phone. He never makes any phone calls. He never engages with the prospects, you know, other than email. He hides behind email on the web. And I said, huh. So we had already started observing that. And so that reinforcement made us pull that individual in and give some coaching that, hey, here are the traits of our top sales reps. We shared it with them. And unfortunately, he didn't make it. But it was very real is that, that, you know, somebody that was outside of the chain of command observed some patterns. And one of the patterns was if you didn't walk in on a Monday morning and have, you know, probably eight to 10 hours of meetings booked for the week. And those eight to 10 hours could be discovery calls. It could be, you know, pricing calls where you're presenting pricing. It could be a demo. It could be a negotiation. If you didn't have eight to 10 set up, because if you think about it, if you have eight to 10 discovery calls, you know, you're probably going to have a couple of those discovery calls go to the next step, which is maybe a demonstration of the software. So those eight to 10 just became, you know, 10 to 12. And if some of your pricing presentation calls, you know, are scheduled there, some of those are going to turn into negotiation calls the next day uh, with somebody else's manager or something like that. And so, you know, like they compound. So eight to 10 hours worth of stuff probably quickly becomes, you know, 15 or 20. Um, and then you got to sit there and ask yourself, well, geez, what does this sales rep do? You know, assuming they work a proverbial 40-hour work week, what do they do with the other 20 hours? You know, prospecting, customer success, things like that, right? And, and so this guy kind of highlighted to us that, you know, he wasn't walking in the door with demos set up, with pricing calls set up. He was set up, he was walking into the week with a bunch of emails to do. And um, it taught us a quick, cold, hard lesson that unless people were actually showing the product, unless they were talking live uh, over a web meeting or a phone call or something like that, then they just weren't going to be successful in our organization. And so um, that's why I say don't be afraid to manage activity. Um, What we were just basically saying is like, look, comparative to other people that are making quota, that are therefore making and earning their commissions, you're not doing those things. So don't be afraid to manage that. Well, Bill, it's been so special having you on the show. I'm so pleased you managed to fit this in. And it really was absolutely fantastic to hear your journey with Marketo and share your stories on sales. So thank you so much. Wonderful. It was a pleasure to join you, Harry. Please hang up and try again. A huge hand to Bill for giving up the time today to be on the show and amazing to hear his take on optimizing the hiring process through rigging the recruiters. Some phenomenal takeaways there. And if you want more SaaS to content, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs, or you can follow Jason Lemkin on Twitter at Jason LK. As always, we're so grateful for all your support and we look very forward to bringing you an incredible founder's journey on Friday.